Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Pod of the Gaps, uh, the podcast which seeks to plug the gaps between the church and the culture. My name is Aaron Edwards and of course I'm joined by the great Andy Bannister, king of apologetics, sitting in a hut in his garden with what I can only describe as bowling alley lighting in the background. It is quite special, the lighting, and this is my... Yeah, it's my wooden garden hut. We've talked about this before. This is Bag End. And yeah. um, because we, when we moved down from Scotland to England, property prices are quite different. So we could not buy a house with a spare room for me to use as an office. So instead, I got a little hut in the garden. And, and, and it does look a bit like a sauna. And in fact, actually, if you are a supporter of Pod of the Gaps, and if not, it's your chance to become one for as little as a pound a month. You can help us keep you this thing going. You can spend time in a sauna with Andy Bannister. Well, you can actually watch the video. So we've, we've right. an experiment. This is the first episode of Pod of the Gaps. I think where we did a live one, didn't we, at Cedarwood, where we recorded the video. Yeah. But this is the first one we we're trying recording the video. And we'll just see. for patron subscribers, it's a temptation. You know, just if you want to see what Andy's hut looks like, you'll have to, you know, chuck in a couple of pounds a month, and then, uh, then you can see it in all its glory. Yes, I, I was tempted actually to quite say we called it Bag End. I was, I almost called it Jabber because I thought that would have been quite funny. Jabber, jab, yes, Jabber the hut. Perfect. Heart, it would be so. I'm, yeah, and where the people could see your beard, my friend, they could see the, the, the beard, true. the beard that keeps on growing as the, as beards do. I'm as just beards. doing it. I mean, it's it's a show of unity for the church. You see, um, yeah. do, you use beard, do you use beard oil? Oil running down. Yeah, oil I don't running actually. around the beard of Aaron. Yeah, but people people kind of ask me if I am assume that I would be, but I don't have any actual beard cultivating skills. I just, you know, it just grows. All I do is yeah. I don't cut it. That's kind of okay. Trim it occasionally, um, but you know. Uh, I notice, of course, you know, watchers of the video. If this video actually works, it may well not work. But I see that is that glass of water, Andy, with some ice in it. Is that? Um, is there something? There is water in here. Yes, there is. There is water in, in the here. ice cube. Um, yeah. In the form of the ice cubes. No, I'm I'm enjoying <laughs> a very um a very cultured gin and tonic because I'm a I'm a bit of a G and T drinker, and I had a um I had a fiftieth birthday the other the other week. And uh, my in uh, one of my one one yeah one of my uh, extended relatives on my wife's side very kindly bought me a bottle of Japanese gin, and I knew the Japanese were making whiskey because I lived in Scotland for six years and whiskey is a big thing up there and there was lots of talk in Scotland about how the Japanese were getting in on the single malt business and doing quite well. Well, they're now getting in on yeah. the gin business, and I, I have to say, Roku Gin Roku Gin is uh, actually really quite. Really I was going to say nice. gin and tonic is a classic English drink, isn't it? It's an English it drink. And tonics, so, mm. but the Japanese are kind of colonizing. The Japanese that. So are, that yeah, are making colonized. it, and and I think like all things Japanese, they approach it very methodically. And right. so everyone, it was interesting. Everyone said they couldn't make scotch, but the Japanese went, "Okay, this is a, there's a scientific process here, so we're just going to keep working at it and refining it, and finally we'll get it right." And they did, yeah, and do it better than me. Good. Yeah. Did you ever see the film Lost in Translation? That had yes, uh, that I did. Was, with um, what's his face? Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Thank you. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> that was very helpful, wasn't it? With what's his face. Yeah. That could have been a whole yeah. possible range of um, things. That's right, yeah. One of those actors, those actors we've heard about. Yeah, one yeah. of those, uh, one of those actors. Um, so exactly, exactly. I, feel, I feel like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't actually got a gin. I presume you hoped that I was going to have an alcoholic drink with me. Otherwise, you are technically drinking alone. I, I am. Well, yes. And, uh, and, and that means you, I mean, yeah, you're sort of out of step, aren't you, on the kind of gin 
Oh, well, I like that. That's good. Yeah, you see, yeah, I was, I was thinking there's got to be a link coming up at some point to tonight. I'm just, I'm just trying to serve you out. I'm just, I just keep talking until you think of a pun. I can, I can. Once the banister cogs are whirring for the pun, they were. So yes. Well, okay. Indeed. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hammer the link then. And the link was last night uh, when I was sitting with a different beverage in front of my log burn, my, my, my wood burning stove. I think it said my log burning wood, my log burning, my log burning wood. That's not right. My yes. wood burning stove, and I wasn't drinking gin tea i was drinking a very civilized uh, cup of um english breakfast tea and i was reading around this time last night this um uh, you know all over the internet all over the interwebs is this great controversy that's kicked off because uh, an anglican bishop has gone and said something a bit controversial i know this is a strange thing in the world of anglican bishops but uh, but but there's a bishop kicking off right indeed there is yes so stephen croft who actually was you know at some point people would have rejoiced uh, the in it to win it Anglicans, which is those you know evangelicals in the Anglican Church who kind of think things are going south and have been for a long time, but if we hold the line, um, we will win the institution. That's the kind of tactic. And I've certainly I've gone back and forth in my sympathy for that. Of course, I've spent a lot of time with Anglicans. I'm technically still a member of the Church of England football team, as you as you know. Um, and so I do. I you know those guys who are sort of like plugging away. I, I get that 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 God has got a calling for them and a, and a purpose for them in what they're doing but they're facing going to face a lot of frustration and they may need to face up to the fact that strategically i wonder whether they actually can win it in the end um, and there's certain reasons for that which we could get into but fundamentally yeah bishop stephen croft was an evangelical bishop but what's the good of being an evangelical bishop if you actually end up sounding like the liberals anyway even with the, with the best intentions and with the best caveats and nuances you can to put around what you're saying, if you're kind of moving with the culture on a certain issue um, that is being attacked within that culture, that the church has held dear for generations, you're, you're going in the direction that you weren't planning to go to originally. And so the debate has been, yeah, is this a good thing? Is the, is the church out of step on same-sex marriage? Which it clearly is. I mean, the church, the church is out of step on same-sex marriage in Britain and certainly in other Western nations as well. Um, and so he's come out and done a whole re reform. It almost comes out across as a kind of repentance for his former view. I'll read one of the quotes from his um, booklet, which was released. I need to acknowledge the acute pain and distress of LGBTQ plus people in the life of the church. I am sorry that corporately we've been so slow as a church to reach better decisions and practice on these matters. I'm sorry that my own views were slow to change and that my actions and lack of action have caused genuine hurt, disagreement, and pain. So that angle mm -hmm. of the, the fear of upsetting others, the fear of causing others offence and pain, has been a huge driver. And of course, it was a huge driver in the Methodist Church's decision um, to move in the direction of same-sex marriage and then ultimately ratify it and put it into, into, their, um, yeah, into their official documents, mm -hmm. basically. So... That's the kind of angle he's gone with. What's your kind of take on that when you first hear that, Andy? Well, the first are, thing are we, actually... Well, the first thing is, I've actually, just before we go to there, Aaron, just something that you you said there struck me. I just want, and I was busy Googling to make sure I'd got the got the definition broadly right. I mean, you weren't... Just thinking you were... So, I was, I, no, I wasn't. What, sorry, what were you saying? Um, yeah. There's the whole question. Words really matter, right? I think if you if you take theology seriously, you take philosophy seriously. Words do really matter. And so, what does the word evangelical mean? That's a really mm. interesting 
sort of thought for a moment and to go, actually, good work's been done on that. And of course, the, the scholar who did the perhaps the most famous definition of that was David Bebbington um, and his fourfold definition of what it meant to be an evangelical. And that's largely been you know, broadly accepted for, for decades. And, and Bebbington says, you know, and even evangelicals are say, essentially people who hold to four points. They are committed to the authority of the Bible. Um, they are cross-centered. Everything comes back to and orbits around the saving work of Jesus on the cross. They are people who are deeply concerned about about conversion, that the message of the that the message of the cross should play itself out in changed hearts and changed lives. And lastly, he said, you know, characteristic of evangelicals is activism. We are they are activists, They're not just content to sit there and talk about stuff. They like to get out and do stuff. They're in, and obviously, particularly in evangelism, they like to be getting out there, spreading the good news, sharing the good news, telling people about Jesus. And I say that to be I, I don't mean to be mean, but to go when someone says to me, "Oh, I am an evangelical." But then goes on to say, like, like you know, Bishop Croft is doing. But I've, you know, on this core issue of Christian ethics, you know, I've come to change my my view. I think at least you can ask. Well, okay, you know, in the words of that famous theologian Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, you know, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Um, That's a good meme. And going, yeah. It is a good meme, and I in my in my in my new book coming out next year, shameless plug. Um, I, I, yeah, there's a sort of Princess Bridey theme running through a couple of chapters. It's good to um, know you've been doing go- high-level academic research for your book, of course. Yeah, yeah. it does exactly, and uh, it's actually quite fun if you do things like in a, in a serious setting. So that famous, you know, Spanish theologian Inigo Montoya, and to go people who don't follow popular culture will look at you like, oh yeah, okay, this is obviously some Reformation guy. And people who are followers of popular culture go, did he just like name drop the the guy who spends the movie pursuing the six fingered man? Um, well, my point being is that I, I think with the greatest respect, Croft has departed um, from scripture. And actually in his book that he's put out, I mean, he, he, I, think, I think he actually sort of unapologetically sort of says this. He sort of says, well, you know, that, you know, scripture does say some things, particularly Jesus' statement on marriage, but nevertheless. And then he sort of yeah. goes on and, and sort of tries to work around it. The whole cross-centered piece of going, well, you know, if, if we start redefining brokenness, Away, and we're very careful here that we don't pick on sexual brokenness. That's that that is desperately easy to do, and it's and I agree that's completely unfair, and I agree that causes huge pastoral damage. But it is one form of brokenness, and the danger is if we say, well, we don't need the cross to work on us here. You know, I can I can disobey the Bible's command and have same you know sex you know relationships. Then of course, what is, I don't see how you can turn around and somebody and go, well, you know, I actually am quite a greedy person, but I'm okay with that. I'm actually. I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that. Um, I don't see how you hold that line. Yeah. And then conversion, right? I think you do start downplaying conversion because isn't the message of the cross that we come we come to Christ, you know, with our brokenness, sexual, you know, and everything else. And I think it's worth saying, by the way, just so we are not misheard, I think everybody is sexually broken. Everybody's broken. Everybody's sexuality is broken in different ways because that's the nature of, of the fall. We bring it to Christ and then we find healing and wholeness sometimes more quickly sometimes it takes longer sometimes we have strength given to us by the holy spirit to, to you know to carry those burdens that we we, we wrestle with um and then of course act, and then of course activism in, in terms of evangelism and one of my worries is the church of england doesn't seem to be doing much evangelism these days it largely spends its time just having internal arguments about sexuality very noisily um so in all of those definitions um yeah and so lastly to the question you you put to me on the where he begins because he talks about the you know, he talks about the one of his tests for 
you know, the appropriateness of same-sex relationships is we look at the whole fruit question and going, yeah. well, I have a couple of questions there, really, a heart, Aaron, to go, yeah, can can same-sex relationships, you know, bear some positive fruit? Of course they can, in the same way that I have been working with Muslims for 25 years. I know some, I know many Muslims whose lives are amazing, who are deeply spiritual people, who are wonderful people to be around. That doesn't convince me Islam is true, just because in their case they, you know, they have, they are nice people. I know many nice atheists. Um, I have some in my family. And to go, well, okay, you know, you're a nice atheist. That doesn't mean that, you know, I therefore go, the worldview that you're espousing is the is the correct one. Um, equally, I know some Christians who can be absolute jerks. Um, so I think there's a there's an issue there. And the other thing on the on the on the on the on the fruit and the pastoral damage, which I think you led with, I'm also deeply concerned with. I have so many friends in movements like Living Out, which is that network of Christians who are yeah. living who are same sex attracted, living biblically yeah. faithful lives. You know, Vaughan Roberts, Ed Shaw, Anne Witten. You know, Sam Albury, David Bennett, the list goes on, who, quite frankly, it's I think it's devastating for to be told, oh, you don't need to sacrifice. You don't need to work hard to follow Christ. Come on, just give in and to just give it all up. You know, you're, this is pointless. You may as well just give in to the culture. Um, yeah. I can't think of anything past or any more devastating. And I, and I know some of those folks find it very hard when the church doesn't offer help and encouragement, but just basically kind of greases the skins into, into sin and rebellion. No, absolutely. That's... that's- very true. So there's loads to um, pick on there. Well, but first I should say, if you if you refer to me as Aaron again, I'm going to have to call you Andrew for the rest of the show. Okay? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, the confusing thing, just in my defence, in my defence, Aaron, I have just come back from a, a week, a few days of mission in Germany, where I have the guy who was heading it up was an Aaron. So I have, there and you've go. taught me well because I started with it when with him. I was like, by the way, is it Aaron or is it Aaron? And he was there like, it's, it's I don't mind. That's yeah, it. We've exactly. got to we've got to bear the cross, you know. As you said, you're a sinner like everyone else. I accept your so, apology. And I'm sorry, know, Bob. Bob. Carry on. Free, free in Christ. That's right. Thank you, Andrew. That's Bob. Bob's fine. Bob is fine. <laughs> For followers of Blackadder. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I think so. It's, a, it's it's really interesting. This whole thing about um, our relationship to scripture and experience, <clears throat> because <clears throat> this is the. As I said, the reason I read out that quote from him earlier is that that's the determinative factor in what's actually going on here and how people are changing their minds. It was the same in Methodism, where I think I referred in one of our previous shows on this kind of related issue, you know, observing the Methodist conference and seeing dozens of people standing up giving very highly emotive discussions where they were saying how they're finally affirmed as a human being, this kind of thing. And then so if you come up and stand next to that person and go, yeah, I know that you've given this really emotive thing that everyone's kind of applauded you over and you've kind of gotten really pulled on the heartstrings there. And so how can someone stand up and just go, but it's doctrinally incorrect for these reasons. Um, it just sounds like that person's completely out of sync, out of step. So clearly we do need to have something that does meet um, or have the conversation in a kind of way that is emotionally appropriate for how serious this is in the effect of it on people. But I'm just more concerned about the deviousness of the deviousness of, um, yeah, of bringing those things in in such a way that it, it flattens the possibility of having any kind of rational discussion about what does the Bible actually say on this? And so there's one quote um, I saw from mm-hmm. the Bishop of Dudley referring to um yeah, saying you know, supporting Stephen Croft and his decision, I'm grateful for his 
helpful booklet outlining his journey of understanding through scripture and experience. And I couldn't help but reply, well, really, the issue is from his journeys of understanding through scripture to experience, where experience is really the kind of end point. Experience is really what's what's making him change his mind. Um, and then, of course, yeah, getting into a little debate about about being uh, called intellectually arrogant for saying that, because I'm assuming, um, you know, that someone who takes that approach isn't being mm. scripturally faithful. And this is what we have to be wary of. People now, in you know, as you use the label evangelical, they can use the label evangelical and make themselves sound as though they're not liberal, but they actually are liberal or progressive, whatever term you want to use. They're not sitting determinatively under the authority of scripture for what they actually believe and think that's different to saying that experience impacts the way you read scripture of course it does of course it of course things that happen to you in your life affect the way you might read certain passages but then in the case of the lgbt um sort of agenda that we see in society and the fact that we're having this massive narrative of homophobia so homophobia is the big problem that the church is just hopelessly homophobic um, therefore, all the discussions are are couched in that language of hurt and emotional pain or emotional abuse. So it just makes it really difficult to say, but it's really quite clear what Scripture says about mm. it. And then you've got all these scholars who then come out and say, oh, but it's not that clear. Look, let me let me write a commentary. Let me write another commentary. Let me second your commentary. Let me write several journal articles. And suddenly you've got this body of scholarship that supposedly um, mm. baptizes this sort of experience, but still ultimately experience that has that has led yeah. to this point because it is out of step with everything else the church has said historically. I was I was chatting with a colleague today talking about this, saying, "Think of nineteenth century biblical scholarship, the kind of very very liberal, like doubting whether miracles even existed, mm-hmm. that Jesus Bolton even existed, let so alone forth, yeah. yeah, yeah, well, that, well, yeah." And Bultmann in the twentieth century taking on some of that that legacy for the nineteenth. You just you just have these these people tearing the Bible to shreds. Not even they were brazen enough to say we think the bible is pro same-sex marriage none of them said that it wasn't even an option to say that so how is it not magically coincidental hmm. that the world goes in one direction votes for same-sex marriage the shift of public opinion turns all the celebrities are moving in that direction certain jokes that people used to make about that would assume a normative um setup of a man and a woman in marriage are no longer kind of valid or even references to that as a norm are no longer valid and now the church is doing its exegesis again now people are coming out saying oh i've just changed my mind on it because they've met enough people who they didn't want to seem like a, a bad person to and so that's ultimately the issue mm. it's experience trumping scripture yeah i think um i think you're right and so, to, uh, a couple of reflections uh initially aaron got it right this time and yeah. um you know, that whole point about how how reason and experience and you know theology fit together you know obviously it's it's interesting this discussion there but i do wonder just as an aside i wonder if you'd replied to the whoever criticized you on that bishop of dudley thread if you'd gone no no you misunderstand me um I, I I used to read scripture as that it was it was wrong, you know, to be to, to to make intellectual assertions. But then my experience led me to realize that it was okay. So you are critiquing my experience. You you can't do that. You're trying to cancel me. You're trying to erase me. You mustn't do this. Identity. Um, everything. It might have broken some scripture. But my point being is, I remember not long after I became I became a Christian. I mean, I was raised in a Baptist home. And then, you know, made a made a sort of public confession of Christ in my early teens. And I can remember, I forget the author, but being in a book very early on, um, where there was a little, I still remember it, it was a little diagram of a train. 
And the you know the train cap the, the the carriage was marked you know experience. There was another one marked emotion, and then the train engine was marked you know kind of was marked scripture, not reason right. but scripture. And of course, the idea you were getting there was look you know look the 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 emotions are not unimportant. We're not we're not brains on on sticks. Mm. Um, experience is not unimportant, but the the thing that pulls the whole thing forward is, as Christians surely has to be has to be yeah. scripture because one of my concerns, incidentally is, you know, the nice story thing that you mentioned. You know, so often, right, when somebody has changed their view on this, there's a there's a personal story behind it. You know, a number of people I meet who are like, well, I used to believe this, and a family member came out, and I changed my view. Yeah. My concern is it doesn't stop with sexuality. I remember years ago, you know, meeting a, a young student in, in, in Canada um, who was really kind of struggling in her, in her faith, and the struggle for her was that her best friend at university was a Muslim. And she couldn't get her head around the idea. She's going, but, but how can I love my friend and and think that they that they're, 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 they're wrong? And she had had well-meaning kind of liberal Christians confusing her even further. But go, well, well, yeah, absolutely, you're dead right. If you just recognise that you know Jesus and Muhammad are, are equally valid options, the Bible and the Quran, God may speak through both. You know that resolves that tension. But even she at nineteen knew that wasn't quite right. And as we yeah. talked over lunch, this was at the uh, a Labrie. Um, community in, in Canada, for those who know that movement, you know, I just gently shared with her, I said, well, actually, believing your friend is wrong isn't unloving. In fact, actually, if you think the thing they're wrong about really matters, it's incredibly loving, yeah. you know, in the same yeah. way that if your friend, you know, is dying of a treatable disease, and they're trying to medicate themselves with with orange juice, you are not unloving to go, dude, stop being a prat, go to the doctor, take your meds. That's not unloving. It's the very opposite. Gin and tonic. Um, you know. Gin and tonic. And I think the same the same here. If if the Bible teaches what I think the Bible teaches, and what Christians for two thousand years have thought the Bible teaches on sexual ethics, we're not helping people by turning around, are we, and saying, "No, you can ignore it. Don't worry. It's just, just, just you know, it's inconvenient. Whatever." Um, then you can, um, you know, I don't think you're helping people. And of course, it begs the question of going: if we end up in a more monstrous age, you know, presumably Christians in the Roman era should actually have been going along with the society there. It was actually deeply inconvenient. And it was yeah. the, the church was deeply out of step with the culture on sexual ethics um, uh, there, but the Christian, you know, the, the early church didn't turn around and go, "Well, actually, I know Jesus said you should have one wife, but in the culture that doesn't really fly." You know, we know that the whole narrative of the New Testament is against slavery, but come on, and uh, you know, we know that Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. But have you seen all these other Roman gods? Yeah, come on, we need to get in step. So yeah, they had a perfect, they had a perfect opportunity, didn't they? At that in, in the early in the first century. The church had a perfect opportunity to um, not go down the route, the route it did in, in terms of what it emphasized on, on, on hetero, what we'd now call heteronormativity. Yeah, and the other thing, I mean, maybe I, I probably am at the risk of being dangerously flippant here. So, 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 throw something at me, correct me before we get angry emails. Okay. Part, part of me would almost slightly have more time. Come back to that definition definition of evangelical. If Stephen Croft yeah. had come out with his little booklet and gone, and by the way, to show that we are really opening and welcoming, we are launching, you know, 10 new major alpha courses across the country. Explicitly, we are in, inviting the LGBT community. Uh, we are going to lead with a missional front front foot on this because this ultimately is not really about marriage. It's about winning people for Christ. We think the marriage we think the marriage thing is a stumbling block. We want to get over that. But we want to stop on the stumbling block. We want to get over it and into the mission fields beyond. But they don't. They have, it's just all you do is they go in circles round and round and round yeah. and round the marriage yeah. issue yeah. and never yeah. and never progress. So I, I think we can raise a question mark over the evangelical 
label. Mm. Tough yeah. as it feels for saying that. If and I don't want to be, you know, nobody wants to be labeled judgmental and pharisaical. Um, I don't think we are we are being. In a sense, I want to invite people back home. I want to invite people back to the cross. I want to invite people back to scripture and say it's not it's not oppressive and restrictive, actually. It's God's <laughs> incredible design for sexuality. Yeah. And uh, and all of us yeah. need our sexuality is challenged. Yeah. And um I, I think Again, it speaks into you know, mentioned earlier the kind of paradigm, the kind of analogy. Was it a train? Was that, was that mm. what you mentioned this? Yeah, it was the train so, with the um, the engine being scripture and the carriages being yeah, um, experience um, and um, emotion. Emotion. Okay. Um, so there's obviously the thinking methodistically, not not something that Wesley himself actually said, but something that like famous Wesleyan scholar has has sort of said is 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 a, a sort of symptomatic of Wesleyan thought called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which many point to, as, as, and many traditions beyond Wesleyanism point to this, of, of a kind of a four-square box almost of, of scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Um, and that's a paradigm that people tend to, t- it tends to sort of be quite helpful for people to understand. And, and you can often find evangelicals and liberals on common ground there going, hey, look, we're all on the same ground. We've all got these four boxes. And technically... We do all have them. Reason and experience and tradition are really important uh, to Scripture. But what they miss out, what an evangelical needs to emphasize, is that Scripture is has primal authority there and a, a unique kind of authority. So it's not just like a, a cycle you go round. And there's lots of people within the academic species known as practical theology, uh, which is neither practical nor theological most of the time. Um, but it, ha- it basically ends up being, um, let we start with Scripture and then we move... Um, or maybe we start with scripture and tradition because sometimes people find those harder to separate. Scripture and tradition is what we start with. Then we have an experience and we use our reason to re-reflect on that experience and we go back to scripture with a new lens and then, then, and then to a new experience. And it kind of starts this kind of either a cycle or a spiral and it en- inevitably ends up meaning that sc- what you believed about scripture, the first things you believed are ultimately not right. Now, even you said you're brought up in a certain way I don't know if your Baptist t- told you not to drink, for example. Clearly, you'd be rebelling against them now. Clearly, we all change our, um, our our beliefs on some things here and there. We might even change our interpretation of Scripture. That's quite normal. It's part part of the process of being a Christian, living life. Um, and yet, at the same time, I would I would be concerned about this sort of sense of a trajectory where Scripture no longer has that primal authority. So it isn't really true to say that it's just one box among many. It's actually the foundation. It's the rock on which the house is built. That's what Jesus says. Is mm. those who listen to my words and put them into practice is like a man who builds his house upon a rock, not upon the sand. And what we've sort of done is say, yeah, I had some time on the rock, and then I went off the rock and had some experiences. Then I came back to the rock and, had, and looked at it with a new lens and said, maybe I could come to the rock and just stay at the rock at weekends, and then I'll go back to the sand in the week or something. There's, a, there's a, just a different approach mm. where people really subtly – um, have made experience the ultimate arbiter. And I think yes. that's what I'm most concerned about here. So there's actually a book that came out, we we're reading it as faculty at Cliff College, which was helpful, called Starting with Scripture by Helen Collins. And she was actually critiquing, it's an academic book, but it's critiquing this model of saying, actually, mm. you need to, if you take that quadrilateral style model, you've got to start with Scripture and actually kind of end with Scripture in a way. It, it yes. stays in its, in, in its primal place. And if we don't do that, we get this kind of nonsense that we're getting from the likes of Bishop Croft and others and, and Steve Chalk and others like them who kind of try to posture as missional, even evangelical. I don't know if Chalk would still use the word evangelical, but um, they're trying to be missional in a way. And it's just not, not only is it not 
faithful it's not working it's not going to work it's completely non it's complete nonsense to think that there's all of these gay people who are waiting to flood into the churches we've said this before of course mm. but it's, it's one of the, it's the stupidest things i've ever heard the thought that you that suddenly there's all these people who are suddenly what desperate to go to church and that's the reason that they're not wanting to mm. go because the church is intolerant and, and they perceive them as intolerant and once they perceive them as tolerant just like them they'll definitely want to come along on a sunday and listen to your um sermon well, I mean, I think a couple of things. There. I think your your reflection on the on the quadrilateral is helpful. I think one of my one of my concerns, uh, Aaron, as well, is that once you start drifting away from scripture and using, you know, particularly experience as your guide, I mean, th- there is the question of where you end. And actually, I'm very sort of careful to sort of slightly anonymize this conversation. But I had a conversation recently with an old um, friend. We were chatting around these issues, and I think he he's evangelical, but I think you know raising some questions i mean i've been i think sort of perturbed by some of what he's he's heard and seen and isn't sure what to think of a couple of things and his you know his mm. comment was i mean he he was wondering you know well you know can it could it really help pastorally maybe it's just a a bet you know the the, the best of a, a, a bad broken world if we open up the category of marriage to include you know those who are same-sex attracted because they're struggling and i remember saying to him i said well mate okay sure i can understand that i said okay what about those who are those who are those who are single and are struggling to find a relationship. What about extending? You know, it's been a bit more generous around things like you know prostitution or things like pornography, and just you know recognizing there are some people for whom this is the only way they can experience sexual intimacy. And what was interesting, he suddenly found firm ground. It was like, oh no, but Scripture is very clear on you know lifelong monogamous relationships. And I went, my friend, I think Scripture is really really clear on the fact that yes that lifelong relationship, which funnily enough is a word for is marriage, is male and, and female. And I said, look, with respect, you can't really like move the boundary posts back 50 yards. And then when somebody else wants to move another 50 yards, go, oh, no, 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 this place is solid rock. And I think we've seen that again and again, actually. I mean, you know, the, uh, you mentioned our old friend, sort of Steve Shaw, who's a bit of a sort of bête noire on this podcast i mean steve is flirting now i would say i think flirting to be fair he's not there yet but he's flirting with universalism quite a few sort of tweets around you know other faiths and perhaps how oh, things yeah. that unite he, he, must there. he must be there i want to be generous aaron he hasn't come right out but he's definitely playing around with that but that would follow because once you once you go you know what scripture oh we thought it was clear mm-hmm. but now it's not clear yeah. um we first thought, thing yeah. second thing I'm very careful. I'm just realizing putting these two things together. I need to be careful with what I'm saying. I'm not saying. I always get suspicious whenever someone says, oh, you thought that it said, but actually what was meant was, because of course that's the voice of, you know, (laughs) that's a voice that occurs in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, doesn't it? Where, um, you know, the devil's ploy is never to go, oh, you know, that doesn't say. The devil's ploy is always to go, oh, is that really what God meant? Is that that really... And whenever yeah, you hear that voice, it doesn't mean it's wrong. You need to li- you'd be careful because, yeah. you know, as evangelicals, we don't have a monopoly on, on, on interpretation of scripture. But I do think when you have 2,000 years of Christian tradition and Christians across traditions, so that's the interesting thing on marriage, right? This is not just evangelicals. This is Protestants of every flavor. This, yeah. is, our, our, this is Catholics. This is Orthodox. This is pretty much the universal Christian witness from the beginning. And in fact, as somebody pointed out, I think it was Warren Roberts, in his response, his very wonderful little book responding to Bishop Croft, where he pointed out, you know, Jesus is actually crystal clear on marriage. You know, in the Gospels, Jesus, you know, takes marriage, defines marriage right back to the beginning. You know, have you yeah. not read yeah. in the beginning, God created the male and female? 
But he also points out again, well, people might say, well, God, he doesn't say anything explicitly about homosexuality. Well, the answer being no, because in the culture he's operating, everybody, every Jew absolutely categorically knew that was beyond the pale, which means that if Jesus wanted to sort of say, no, it will one day be okay, he is going to have to really come out and be clear, not little hints, not little, well, I'll just sort of, you know, frame a thing that maybe later 21st century Methodists can mess around with it, of going, that's the kind of, and we, Jesus is quite capable of doing that. You know, Jesus was quite capable in the Sermon on the Mount of saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He could have said, you have heard that it was said, male and female, but I say to you, actually any two people who love each other and are committed together, no matter what their gender. Um, He was more than capable of doing that because Jesus... My word, he drives the coach and horses through some long understandings Absolutely. of uh, things. And he doesn't. And I think no. this is the problem that you're facing. Or not you, I, obviously, that our, our more liberal friends are facing. Yeah, yeah. No, well, we're, I'm facing it in the trouble I'll get in for talking about it. But, yeah, a different kind of trouble. But, uh, um, you know, actually, I, just my, I, I don't I'd like to you know, add my footnote on feminism at these points. What all, you, all you've just said refers in the same way to gender in general and to feminism. I don't think, as Ian Paul mentioned you know, before, is though he's an egalitarian, rampant egalitarian, um, agrees with me um, when, we, when we've discussed this, that actually that you, you these whole issues are connected on the same continuum. What we think about male and female being different, are male and female different? If we don't think that they're different and that God likes the fact that they're different, and his wisdom, in his wisdom, has created us as different, and perhaps even give us different roles. Certainly, I would say. Um, then, same-sex marriage becomes inevitable. I would actually say, and all the denominations they start by um, that have moved in this direction. They've started with gender in general. Male and female difference has been eroded, and actually ends up being moving to a further. You know, actually, same being of the same sex and getting married doesn't really matter because it's just your person. I'm a person. Just like there's no such thing as male or female. And they use the Galatians, of course, passage, no male or female in Christ and out of context to try to make it sound like it doesn't matter anymore. But Jesus had loads of opportunities to undo the stuff um, that we now see as problematic in Scripture. And just to go back to the point earlier, you know, mentioning Satan, really helpful, actually. <laughs> the, when, what Satan says in, in, the, in the garden, you could almost argue that Satan's the first ever biblical scholar. He's the first one to come to the <laughs> I've got a new hermeneutic for you guys. It's great. Come and read my latest journal article. It's really, really, uh, the expertise is fantastic. I've got all you know, I've got, I'm this professor. And so it reminds me of that quote from Kierkegaard I might have said once or twice before. You know, where, he, where he, he's thinking about the scholars of his time in the 19th century and saying all these interpreters and interpreters and new scholarly interpretations, they all have the solemn and serious intention of getting us closer to God's word. But if you look closer at what they're doing, um, they're actually trying to defend themselves against God's word. So if they buffer themselves with mm. these commentaries that, and these ways of clever hermeneutics they'll find their way around what seems really quite obvious um in yes. the in the text and funnily enough another person i saw on on uh, on twitter i think it might have been somebody's not a christian just on some debate i don't know who it was but uh, so someone was just kind of weighing in on a debate and, and kind of going oh great i'm gonna he's, he's happy that the bishop had decided to go in this direction so i guess that means god's changed his mind then and even this person was kind of just going and i was like well yes indeed that does seem to be the only, either God's changed his mind or the more ludicrous thing is that the church, God has been so woeful at communicating his message to his people via his Holy Spirit that it's taken 2,000 years for him to finally get the message through. It's the most, wow. it's the most stupid thing that you can know, imagine. I, that, 
trying to get it through. I've said ah. all this stuff in the Bible. Oh, Didn't you see all the clues that I left for you and all the people I tried to send you away? And all the time you kept rejecting it until now, until the, until I finally had to get same-sex Ooh. marriage agreed in the culture. And now you've decided to go back to your Bible yes. and go, oh, maybe, maybe actually. Now public opinion's changed. Now that it's all swayed. Yeah, maybe the Bible does say something different. Well, do you, the funny thing is, do you know, I hadn't thought about this until you made that point, Aaron. But, you know, there's a point I make, shameless plug, in my first popular book, The Atheist, didn't it, 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 it exist about, about um, well, thank you. This point, Dawkins, I pick up. I pick up a point that Richard Dawkins makes, where he talks about mm. the moral zeitgeist that we kind of don't need God because morality is sort of you know constantly improving. It's constant progress, progress, yeah. progress. And I have some fun with him on this because it's a ludicrous idea. But one of the things I say is, of course, the problem with that view, if you think it's all down to sort of evolutionary ethics and things just changing, I said, well, you know, if you hopped into a time machine, went back a hundred years, and told our ancestors um, that you know everything they would have been turned upside down, particularly on sexual ethics, transgender and everything, they would think you're mad. They would literally think you were stark staring bomb because it would be so different from what they could imagine. Now, I come back to our century and I say, you know, as you step out of your time machine, you think, wow, I'm so glad I live in the 21st century progressive West. But then the thought suddenly strikes you. If it happened to them, it happened to you. So all the things that you think are absolutely carved in stone, uh, you know, I'm conscious that paedophilia is a low-hanging fruit but racism you know abusing the environment whatever it is that you think there's no way that anyone could change their mind on that to go well actually dude sorry you're you've just proven the point with the 19th century guy well this the same argument i've just realized applies here to you know the sort of more the kind of bishop croft steve jork you know liberal anglican end of of christianity because they're going okay if we could be so wrong on scripture because scripture is really is clear. It has to be clear because for, for or relatively clear, right? Because for 2000 years, Christians and Jews before them for the Old Testament read it as marriage is between a man and a woman. And it's so clear, but we, 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 we got it. We got it wrong. And furthermore, as you say, God failed to communicate clearly. So that means on anything that we think is current theological certainty, we could be wrong. We can't trust anything. Yeah. Um, you know, the uniqueness of of Christ, the the reality of human, you know, sinfulness, the need to share the gospel, the whatever it is, you pick any scriptural issue, you're going, well, quite frankly, buddy, you can't be sure. So you have, you know, this whole idea that skepticism is a universal acid, it eats everything. So I think one of my comments to Bishop Croft would be, okay, give me some bedrock, give me something in scripture that you think is unassailable. And I think I can demolish it. I think I could deconstruct it. And it was old, it was AJ Ayers, the famous atheist mm, yeah, philosopher yeah. Who, who famously said that the, the 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 debunker should be forced to wield the debunking sword against his own cherished beliefs mm. and i think that applies mm. theologically mm. actually exactly right and i think you you know i know you mentioned the, the low-hanging fruit but it's it's gone from being like crazies on the far right saying oh this could happen to a genuine reality on 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 paedophilia and no one who's advocating for same-sex marriage is thinking that and of course it's and we wouldn't want to put them in the same camp as saying oh you're for this and so that's important to make that clear what they don't realize is that they're part of the same train that's taking the culture that step further that step further and i guess one uh, in, in one sense what happens in the culture and what happens in the church you know, we can say, well, it's inevitable that the culture is going to go a certain way. The, the more godless it becomes, the further it kind of 
um, removes itself from some of the foundations of, of Christian influence, that is going to be inevitable. So we don't have to like, I, I wouldn't go around uh, judging those who aren't Christians and saying you're, um, you need to conform to Christian standards. I want to preach the gospel to them. Um, mm. And I, I'm not, it's like when the culture went for same-sex marriage in terms of legalizing it 2013 in this country, um, I didn't, I wasn't going around going, you know, this is an absolute travesty for everything else. And I could have done maybe, and there are things to say about it. It's not a great ind- indication of where a culture is going, but I'm more concerned when the church starts doing it. I, I always realize, well, yeah, okay, fine. Call what you're doing marriage. It's fine. It's just, it just looks like a civil partnership with some religious um, kind of topping. And you still can't get get married in a, in a state church, but now that the state church in in this country going in this direction would be a monumental thing, and it would actually it, it would have an a, effect on other churches as well. So those who are listening to this, going, oh, um, it's just you know I don't really care about what goes on the Church of England because I'm in a free church or I'm a Pentecostal or I'm a Baptist or whatever. They can do what they want. We don't even believe in established uh, Christianity anyway. Well, fine, but actually, what does happen there is probably going to have ripple effects uh, beyond. And so I, it is concerning mm. when churches who have a historic tradition suddenly just kind of change and go, actually, we can do this with the Bible. And then suddenly people who are in those situations who are thinking through this thing, who are in their moment going, oh, maybe what does the Bible really say? They've then got these precedents to point to, wow, you can be a Christian. Oh, look at the Anglicans are doing all this mission. Look at all the good they're doing. Look at them helping the poor. And they just happen to marry gay people. What's so bad about that? Like, why, why, maybe we yeah. are the wrong ones. Maybe we're the bigots. Well, I think as well, that, I, yeah. And again, this loops back to the David Bebbington point at the start about, you know, there's four features of an evangelical. I think one of my concerns, without again, without meaning to, I'm very careful here. I think what's worrying is that I think the likes of, of Stephen Croft, I think, to be fair, Steve Chalk and, and others, I and mean, we obviously we've used those as our sort of, you know, whipping boy dialogue partners through this episode. I don't actually think they sit down intentionally and go, hey, let's just cause all kinds of merry chaos. But what I don't think they do is think they think, they think theologically. And one of the things I think that flows out of, of this and something you've just said there to kind of resonated is that is that I think there's a perennial challenge in culture um, and in Christianity that we don't collapse Christianity into good, into just being good news and being good, good advice rather it's good news so you know one of my sort of favorite theological uh, you know writers Tom Tom Wright or N T Wright depending on whether he's writing in you know for for for, for, for you know dummies like me or more academic people you know in his book simply good news so there's has this lovely paragraph where he says you know the early Christians when they were thinking about the word to use for their new movement, didn't pick the word advice or religion or philosophy or any of those things. And he said, many people do in fact think that Christianity is good advice. You know, here's some rules for living, follow me life a bit better. He said, they didn't pick that word, they picked the word gospel, which means good news. Mm. Christianity is good news. And when it comes to news, the only two things that matter is, is the piece of news you've heard true? And if it's true, does it mean what the person telling you it thinks it does? But mm. I think this whole let's just keep redefining things so that more appealing to people does quite frankly play into let's turn church into a freaking social club. Let's turn it into a, into a, you know, a sort of good advice of a, a moral philosophy, uh, um, you know, a sort of, you know, club for people who want to change the world. And that plays into, and we don't want to talk about it now, but you know, we've critiqued the Archbishop of Canterbury in previous episodes for just sounding like the culture all through COVID. Yeah. He just parroted the government on the environment. He's parroting, you know, Extinction Rebellion and everything. So there's nothing particularly un- always uniquely Christian. So I can see how if I was non-Christian on the outside looking in, you'd go, oh, okay, so this is what, a bit like the Labour Party, but with a little, bit, a little dash of spirituality. And then my last thought on this, and I'd love to get your take on 
on this. I think missiology is your thing, right? One of the things that struck me was Stephen Croft in this sort of paper he's written, this book that he's written. It talks about, well, we look, we need to be able to engage the culture. And if we change our view on this, if we adapt our view on this, we, we you know, we'll, we'll be able to connect better. Well, let's just, for the sake of argument for a minute, Aaron, grant him that. Let's say that the church radically redefines marriage and, and look through that. A handful of people, you know, start coming to church and encounter, encounter Jesus. And let's be honest, that's wonderful. We want people to encounter Jesus. So let's be as positive as we can. But on the other side of the equation, one of the groups that I'm most concerned about and have been engaged with for 25, 30 years are Muslims, right? The amount of time I've invested in, 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 in reaching out into that community. And look, back in the late 1990s, I would have Muslims coming to me and waving the whatever the newspaper report about some bishop who'd said something daft was, oh, you know, some of the bishop of Durham, you know, David Jenkins came out and denied the resurrection. I had Muslims waving that at me and going, ah, oh, see, your bishops don't believe. If the Church of England changed its definition of marriage, it would be a missional absolute disaster. You know, every Anglican African, and we forget, you know, the number of Anglicans in this country practicing like real ones is pretty small. Most of the, you know, what is it, 100 million Anglicans are in places like Africa and Latin America and Asia and those kind of places. In many places, particularly in Africa, they're cheek by jowl with Muslims. You know, they will be the ones getting it in the neck. It won't be if you go to, you know, sit twats in, you know, Islington where, you know, your neighbor's going to be going, ha ha. But in, in, sorry to be direct, but if you're a Christian in Zimbabwe, you will have your Muslim neighbors go, oh yes, this proves everything we've always thought. You know, Christians are morally lax. They don't believe in scripture. They believe in nothing. And, you know, your witness will have been massively compromised. Um, I'm not saying we, you know, go the other way. We, you know, we, the only thing that drives our theology is whether Muslims will approve of it, but actually, I think my Muslim friends can smell hypocrisy a mile away. Yeah. Um, and, Absolutely. you know, they would they will be calling us out on this. So, yeah, maybe we'll win the odd Western progressive, but we'll set back Muslim missions decades. No, that's a really, really good point. That's fascinating. When you first started that, um, that point, you said Christianity is not, um, not just... Not advice. No, yeah, you started... I missed... I said yes, and I wasn't yeah. just being British and agreeable. Going, oh yes, 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 because you do that on podcasts. Yes, yes, whatever the person says, yes. No, but no, I no, do, no, I no. do, I do. Mean, if you had meant Christianity is not just good news, I would actually. Have, that's what I meant. I meant yes. I, oh, I agree good, with yeah, both. Yeah, okay. it's not just good advice, but it's also not just good news because good news requires bad news as well, and and it means to be a prophetic voice. And obviously, God reveals who He is in His holiness. Yes. And the good news is good news. And I was, I was saying this at a men's group recently. We've been going through a series on on David's mighty men, which has been fun, and just trying to get people to understand the fact that, like God, God's holiness means that He kills people, and it's not just that He lets some people die in the Old Testament, for example. Oh yeah, I, I let them die. I didn't. I was you know restrained my hand from stopping this person dying. He either sends people to kill people on His behalf destroyers like jehu or someone or he just kills them directly and i think people need to understand that god is a very serious god that you don't mess with um and then you understand why the good news is so good then you understand why grace and peace and reconciliation that are offered in the gospel are so incredible because this is a god you're not supposed to mess with and i think the muslims have a very high view of a god you don't mess with and that's why there are some people actually drawn to islam um at this time, because they're seeing, you know, the, the West in such a, 
disarray in terms of what it believes on so many moral issues. And, and the most interesting of these I, I saw recently was a guy called Andrew Tate. Have you heard of him? Um, um, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. So, so he's a, a kind of one of these sort of guys on the on the probably legitimately toxic masculinity end of things. Um, kind of constantly boasting about how many cars he's got, how much money he's made, and lots of men kind of listening to him. Um, there's probably some stuff he says which is kind of good, um, but there's loads of stuff he said which is very like unhelpful. And quite, but but he's still kind of an icon for many young men today. And it's really intriguing that he recently came out um, talking about his conversion to Islam, as so he, he sat there just discussing why he's why he doesn't want to identify with Christianity. I think he previously would have identified as Christian because he's a Westerner and he believes the morals and virtues that are there in the West, in Western fabric of culture. Um, and now he's like, no, I now I can see Christianity is too easy. It's actually something where you, you know, you kind of go along, and, and and God seems to just not really care about stuff. He doesn't have any red lines. That was the language used. He said in Islam, I know that God has red lines. He has boundaries. He he's someone that you kind of don't mess with. Now he says some stuff. He clearly doesn't fully understand the God of the Bible, um, but at the same time, you kind of think. Yeah, there's people, not not just Muslims, but there's also people who are then I- intrigued by this idea of wanting there to be boundaries and rules that then actually the gospel shows you that, let's say, the law is not actually sufficient to save you. But the fact that God has standards is quite an important missional endeavor as well. And so to speak to Muslims, whenever I'm sure you've done much far more than I have, but whenever I have spoken evangelistically to Muslims, that's the debate I get into. And I'm trying to draw connections and say, look, we're actually on the same page about what we believe about God on loads of things. But let me show you how uh, the gospel completely blows apart what you think is so impossible. Let's say things like the incarnation, God sullying himself, becoming human, um, or God's holiness being Mm. somehow compromised by that or compromised by the offer of grace in the gospel. And they don't have any concept of grace, obviously, in, in in that sense. So there's so many missional things. If we're going to talk mission, you're totally right. We, we can't just be um, saying we, we really care about this portion of the of the population and just ignore the rest. And we know that we're going to completely cut them off and they're never going to talk to us because they won't respect what we say mm. as a result. No, I think that's I think that's right. And I think um, I'm also struck by it's funny the things that happen in the same kind of sort of sort of period in the same at the same time as I've been thinking about, um, you know, Bishop Croft and his uh, sort of wandering all over the reservation. I was also engaging kind of recently with, uh, again, I'll be careful to anonymize kind of things so people can't make the connection. Just change my name, my letters of my name around. I'll, I'll, I'll change, I'll, 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 I'll just make up a, I make up a face, a, falcon, a, face, a fake name like Justin Wacker or, uh, yeah, or something, exactly. but actually um, exactly. that's too close to somebody we both know who is not the person. But anyway, I was dealing with somebody who has been involved in mission to Muslims for a while and, you know, has gone down a well-trodden path of going, oh, you know, some of the language used in Scripture is a stumbling block. So they've started their own Bible translation. <laughs> so like a one-man Bible translation of Luke's Gospel. And as part of this, they took it upon themselves to mistranslate Son of God, and I think God's special representative. Because, of course, Muslims struggle with Son of God language, so let's change it. And I'm like, okay, um, there's a whole host of problems there, you know, not least that massively you, you redefine theology as you do that. But in one sense, actually, all they've done is what Bishop Croft has done. They've gone, okay, here's the culture I'm trying to reach. I'm trying to reach, you know, liberal Westerners. And that's hard. I get that. I get that it's hard. I try, I'm try. i doing that work most weeks. You know, they're trying to reach Muslims. That's hard. I, try, I, I do some of that most months. But to go, I'm just not sure of the wisdom of going, okay, here's the stumbling block. So actually, we just need to blow that stumbling block out of the way. I, I do keep coming back to 1 Corinthians you know, mm-hmm. that the cross is a 
stumbling block to, to, yeah. to Jews yeah. and foolishness to Greeks. And surely, if the hermeneutic is, well, we just need to level the stumbling blocks as if we're building a highway through, through a rocky wasteland, Paul would have gone, it's stumbling blocks to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But the good news is I just throw the cross out the window and actually found that if we just circumcise ourselves, the, the Jews lovers, and if we could just affirm a couple of like Roman gods on the side, you know, the Greco-Roman world are lovers, job done, boys. Um, but he doesn't. He's like, well, actually, you know, it is a stumbling block. And yes, we want to be winsome. And yes, we need to try and win as many as possible. And, you know, yes, we need to build bridges. I mean, Paul builds bridges in Acts 17. He was a great bridge builder, but he was not a compromiser in the process. And I think maybe we've missed, we've confused in our culture. Too many people have confused bridge building and compromise. You can build bridges. You know, yes, we need friendships with our LGBT plus people. We need to go into their territory. We need to, you know, and that may be risky. It may be uncomfortable. I was interviewing somebody the other day for a podcast who uh um who i forget which line of work they're in actually they were we did a series on the solas website where we interview people in different workplaces and he talked about how one of the really you know rich outreach opportunities he's had was going along to the lgbt meetings at lunchtime so the first time i set foot in there it was terrifying because when they found out i was a christian it was like woomph all the yeah. stuff thrown he said i just I just didn't say anything. I just, well, actually, I'm not sure that's quite right. And okay, I understand why you might think that. And he said, once they'd finished sort of like, you know, dropping everything on me and I kept coming, then we built friendships. And he said, I was able to share Christ. And he said, I've been able to have some really direct conversations, actually, because I invested the time. And he said, I haven't had to compromise a single thing. And I think, that, I think the, the fact that the idea that you have to compromise for mission is a massive mistake. It's a massive mistake. The trouble with that is as well with with no not with that the trouble with the Stephen Crofter thing is that that your friends then approach of doing that and and then saying okay yeah I'm I'm winning these people because they're able to see that they can disagree completely but you can they're still kind of there's a sense of you you care about them as people you're not actually you're not actually being homophobic you're actually saying um, I affirm you as a, as a human being I want to I actually want to persuade you i want to actually tell you that this is i want to proclaim the gospel you want to proclaim the truth to you if you have a stephen croft or a steve chalk or others who come along and just say but you could just don't have to do that just get married just let's just change the rules and it's all it's all fine it totally destroyed demolishes you said earlier the kind of living out um, people for example The, the people who are laboring to say no i'm really really i'm battling with the experience of how hard this is and I'm also trying to uh, win people, the likes of David Bennett, or whatever, who who's sort of still spends a lot of time in the LGBT community, as it were, whether that's really a thing or not. But it's a, it is, of course, seen as a category. Um, and he does that to labor, trying to preach the gospel, trying to win them to say, you don't have to compromise on these things. You can actually follow um, this route without suddenly be- becoming, you know, a Westboro Baptist type um, Christian or something. And so it it if someone comes along and just says, yeah, we're just going to change everything, it doesn't really help. It doesn't help those things at all. And ultimately, it doesn't bring people true freedom. They don't really have the gospel. And I think that's going to be, you know, any any of our listeners, I don't know if we have any listeners in, in the LGBT community, or we have a few, but they would find some, some increasingly find it incredibly offensive. I, I get into conversations with people who are so far gone on this issue. They, they find it incomprehensible that I could, uh, that I couldn't be, you know, that, that, that I'm even for them at all because I seem to be so far on the other side on this issue. But I'm, I'm trying to tell them, look, you can't, you you can't have the Bible. Sorry, you can't have the Bible and affirm this. You you can absolutely affirm it and chuck the Bible away, 
But the, this is what I keep emphasizing. The danger is we, we've got people who want to affirm all the evangelical distinctives or most of them and scriptural authority. Can we have that as well, please? Well, I'm sorry, you can't. You can depart from it and then good luck to you. Um, hmm. We're not going to be able to welcome you into the church in full communion if you're going to not repent of this because that's going to be a serious problem. Um, but you can't have both. I'm afraid that that's the issue. And even, like I said earlier, even the liberal biblical scholars, <clears> they just they just say the Bible's homophobic. They're kind of honest. They think the Bible's homophobic. Now, I don't think the Bible's homophobic. But what they mean is <coughs> it's clearly against same-sex relations. Um, so they, they don't try and like cover it up. And their objective, they're often you know either atheist or they're kind of agnostic or they don't even believe in any of this stuff anymore. But they're, they're, they don't they don't go around trying to pretend that the Bible says something it doesn't say. They say Paul's misogynist. All the stuff he said about women is just really the, it's clear it's there. We just think he's a misogynist, so we just disagree with him. We don't believe in the Bible's authority, but we're going to do all the work to show you what it what it really says, and we're not going to try and pretend that it means something else. And so that, those the people who are kind of being these kind yeah. of soft evangelical leaners in this direction really need to hear that because that's where they're headed. They're ultimately going to head in that direction if they put a scriptural authority down. So it is a really really key issue for the church to get right in our time isn't it i think so and i think you know as we wrap up i think you know uh, uh, one of my favorite quotes for a long time we you know talk this to our kids quite a lot i think it was tim keller um i think mm. it's tim keller who 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 coined this which is the line that uh that goes you know very simply you know that the, the the reality of the gospel is that we are so bad that Jesus had to die for us. That's how, you know, that's how messed up we are. We're so bad that Jesus had to die for us, but we're so loved that he was glad to die for us. And that when you unping, you know, either half of that, that tension. And I think, you know, we haven't talked much about it on this, on this episode, but, you know, to go, yeah, there is Pharisaism in some parts of the conservative churches. I completely agree that, you know, you can lose the second half of that part of the gospel. You can also lose the first half. And the gospel is when you bring those two, Together, when you diagnose sin, you're honest about it, you repent and you go, I have messed up. I have done this. I have not lived as God, in, God intended to. I've not loved God with my heart, mind and soul. I haven't you know, kept his law. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. But the beautiful reality of the gospel is the freedom that comes. And I think that's the piece that I sometimes worry in the Stephen Croft approach is missed sometimes, Aaron, is that with confession doesn't come condemnation. If it does, something has gone wrong. And again, I'd want to go, there are churches where I'm sure if you confess, you do get condemnation. And if we come across that, let's darn well call, call it out for what it is. But w- biblically, when you confess, then comes freedom. And then should come Christians coming alongside to help you carry your burdens. And again, I think the church could do a better job here sometimes with our LGBT friends of going, you know, don't try and engage in clever theological acrobatics. Confess in the same way that all of us who've fallen confess all of the sound of redemption in Christ. And then let's help one another. And, you know, praise the Lord. You know, I'm grateful that I'm not, you know, I don't struggle sexually in that area, but there are other areas I, I do. There are other areas I, I do. You know, money has always been a big issue for me. I worry tremendously. And that's something I, I, I wrestle with, trusting trusting all of our finances. My wife were here, we'd, she'd say, you know, I can sometimes be a bit short-tempered. I need to develop the spiritual gift of, of, of patience. Um, but I, but I, don't, I mustn't, I don't, work through that issue by going actually it's okay i've got a reason i've got a good reason why i shouted to my kids this morning it's okay i work through it by going i confess i messed up and i need god's redemption as we all do so yeah we are so we are so messed up that jesus had to die for us we're so loved that he was glad to die for us and if you unseparate those you are not an evangelical absolutely no that's really good good thought to end it on and and just even to 
sort of frame that a little bit, just one of the reasons this matters, as we've been talking about, is sometimes the church leans in one direction or the other mm-hmm. of those two things you just outlined. And sometimes we've, we've mentioned many times before the need not to create false straw men and, and, and constantly harp on about the, what is a real problem occasionally, but it isn't actually the main problem. It might be like a, a problem that used to be a big problem in the previous generation. And what's the problem that's here right now, right in our door? Where's the fire on the, on the doorstep of the church? Um, and the LGBT agenda in culture is a significant one. And so church, we get pastors and, and, and Christians and not even just pastors, people in, in all, all across the church need to be aware of this to get the gospel right, to be really, really free to proclaim it in all of its fullness. And then and not to worry, not to worry about what might happen to you, actually, if, by getting in trouble about this. I think the more courage begets courage and we need to keep speaking up on this. And, and you know, the ludicrous thing about some of the things we see in the culture is, today people who come in, in support of people like Croft and others will say what a courageous stand that he said well what a courageous thing to do to come and you know say to come and do this which is which is such a hard thing to, to come out and support same-sex marriage i mean it might be courageous within certain church circles i agree but for the most part it isn't courageous with visibly the culture that's what the culture wants you to say and so courage really does mean sticking on that rock mm. regardless of what you're gonna we're gonna have thrown at you for saying these things and, and for proclaiming them, but proclaiming them, as you say, Andy, with that full sense of what the gospel means for all of us, that we're all sinners, we're all in need of grace, including regardless of the, the kind of communities to which we belong or the particular sins that we happen mm-hmm. to struggle with. So let's make sure we continue um, yeah, speaking the whole truth, the whole counsel of God. And on that end of that kind of sermonic note, um, we come to the end of this episode. I must uh, re- release Andy to his gin and tonic, um, which may have been finished by now. Um, it has. It's, maybe all, that, maybe it's all gone. But, uh, does, that ex- does that explain some of your comments in this episode? If, if, if you're getting trouble over this episode... It does. We can do a graph, couldn't we? Gin and tonic consumption <laughs> versus theological uh, yeah. accuracy. But no, a cup of decaffeinated tea... And uh, an episode of Top Gear awaits, I think. Excellent. That's that, that sounds that sounds fun. Well, right, on, that yeah, well, on that bombshell, indeed. On that on that glass of uh, um, Farewell, listeners, and uh, we hope to uh, have another episode out soon. And we hope you've enjoyed this one. As always, please keep liking, sharing, supporting the show. Come and send us your feedback. And send us a review. By the way, we could do with a few more on. Uh, oh yeah, on, that'd uh, be on, great. On, on whatever iTunes or wherever. So do 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 reviewers. And uh, if if Aaron said something controversial, then you can call him out for that. If I've said something controversial, just ignore it. Absolutely. That's that's the usual rule, as you all know. And of course, if you want the video, go go over to Patreon. And, you know, that's our way of sucking you in here to, to, you know, to help support the show. And we could actually get some more episodes out and do some cooler things with the show going forward with some more supporters. So hope you found this helpful. I've been Aaron Edwards. That's been Andy Bannister. Andy Bannister. as he's as he's <laughs> rightly we'll have to tell you just in case you didn't know what i said he's definitely the andrew Bannister and aaron edwards uh there we are uh, we've been and we have gaps. been part of the gaps <laughs> <laughs> i think we should we should release a bonus reel of failed endings it would be, uh, right. be a whole show in itself I think it's been an hour of failed endings probably absolutely yeah. on that note good oh, that was the end we'd actually end that was the end mate <laughs>